Awesome. How many folks have seen the movie? It is still available down the road in Brandywine, by the way. Uh, it is a fantastic film. Now, I need to clarify. I've had a number of people walk up to me and say, Pastor Bill, I didn't know that they were trying to find this body all through the Bible. Well, actually, no. This is what's called a historical fiction uh, it is built around the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's grabbed onto a particular character that could have been there and traced his life. Not unlike the old movies Barabbas or the old movie The Robe, so too this movie is along those lines. So you'll not find all the details spoken of in the movie in the Bible, but it is a historical episode that they then take the character and have him walk out of it. So we're using kind of this back drop called Risen for our Easter season. And today happens to be Palm Sunday. Uh, Dennis mentioned that it's, it's also the first day of spring. I didn't know that. But you know what else it is? It's called the International Day of Happiness. That's awesome. That's awesome. I don't know if that's because it's Palm Sunday or if it's because it's spring. I don't know. But it's the International Day of Happiness. So put a smile on your face. Today's the day you're supposed to be happy. So today, uh, we're going to kind of move down into the next layer of what we're talking about. Uh, the movie revolves around a, a tribune by the name of Clavius. He has spent 25 years in the Roman army, and the man is weathered and tired, and all he longs for, in his own words, is a day without death. And so he gets caught up in this, this death of, of the Messiah, of Jesus. He was thrust on that scene, and then when the body goes missing, he's, he's, he's made to try and figure out what happened. And so he just finds himself in the middle of this whole cauldron of, of the Jews and the Romans and all that's going on, but the interesting thing is, as he makes his way through it, he's slowly but surely understanding what he's been lacking in his life is exactly what the risen Messiah can bring to him. And so the movie ends with him finding that Jesus is the one that he has been looking for all his life. So today, we're going to try to track down this idea of the resurrection. Is it a myth or is it a miracle? The resurrection, is it a myth or is it a miracle? You've got to admit, you've really got to admit, this whole idea that the Bible kind of puts forward about God, the creator of all humanity, uh, choosing to take on the human form himself and entering into his creation at the lowest of the lows through the womb of a, of a poor little girl called Mary and is born in a stable... And he's born there, and then he grows up, and he lives a perfect life. The very life God demanded of his creation when he created it. But because of our sin, we couldn't do it, but he did it for us. So he lived the life we could not live, perfect. And then he dies the death that we're supposed to die because of our rebellion against God. And it's, it's just too fantastic to really think about it. God becomes man, lives the perfect life, dies our death, and then just to make sure that everything is validated and everything he said is true and everything that uh, he did was true, he then rises from the grave, and today he has ascended on high, and he's actively drawing people to himself and, and, and to bringing them into relationship with him. And if you'll walk with him in loving obedience, he'll give you the best life you could ever live. Come on, really? That's too good to be true. There's no way all that can be accurate. This is just another one of those myths. You know, every religion's got them. Every religion has its own creation story. Every religion has its own redemption story. Every religion has its own stories. What makes this story 
true? Is there any real evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly happened? In the next few moments, we're going to kind of pose that question. We're going to see what kind of proof there is to this thing called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a thinking person. I hope so. If you're a thinking person, then all you long for is something reasonable, something reasonable to believe in. Well, I'm happy to tell you that Christianity is the thinking man's religion. It's the thinking woman's religion. That is what Christianity is. Biblical faith is not merely an emotional experience that's meant to bypass our brains. It really isn't. Somebody put it this way. Jesus Christ died and rose again to take away your sins, not your brains. He expects you to think. He expects you to apprehend things. He expects you to have thoughtful thoughts. Uh, so biblical faith is not merely an emotional experience. Biblical faith is also not just a leap in the dark. Oh, well, I'll see what happens. No, 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 no. It's not that proverbial blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't even there. You know, sometimes we can think faith is just this leap. It isn't. Biblical faith is actually founded upon truth. Truth that is thoughtful, truth that you can weigh and make a choice about. And I love the way that Dr. Luke, uh, there is a man who wrote some of the, the Bible, actually it is the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. It was written by a medical doctor, a man of science, a man who had a very logical thinking. And so he literally wrote uh, Luke and Acts as the addendum to, to the story uh, for a friend of his by the name of Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is probably a Roman official of some kind, but he says, I am going to set out for you an orderly understanding of what happened about this guy called Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, he's telling his friend Theophilus these words. Until the day when he, Jesus, was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, Jesus chose them, he then presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Notice this, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, what makes Christianity more true, more real, more tangible, more authentic, more um, verifiable than all the other religions? We're going to talk about that in just the next few moments together as we consider together the resurrection is it a myth, or is it really a miracle? Let's pray, and from there we will venture forth. Father, uh, thank you for the worship that we've already enjoyed this morning. Uh, I, I am just so grateful, uh, Father, for having such talented, capable people to take us into your presence and to exalt the person of Jesus Christ. Father, in the next few moments, I pray that as we walk through the scriptures and as we consider some thoughts, that the Holy Spirit would take this and make it real in our hearts. Um, sometimes we think all this spiritual stuff is just spiritual, uh, but it's actually historical. It's actually real. It actually happened. Help us to kind of get our arms around that today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, along this idea, he presented himself alive by many proofs. The first, if you will, proof that I'd like to kind of bring to your forefront uh, is this. It is the proof of the empty tomb. The proof of the empty tomb. 
Now, I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66 say this. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Now, the day of preparation in the Jewish way of thinking was Friday. That was preparing for the Sabbath, which was Saturday. So they're actually talking the next day is Saturday. Jesus has been crucified. He is laying in the tomb. The next day, that is after the preparation, the chief priests now and the Pharisees have gathered themselves before the Roman official Pilate. And they said to him, Sir, we remember how that that imposter, they're referring to Jesus, while he was still alive, said this, After three days I will rise. Therefore, in light of that, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and then tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And so the Roman official, Pilate, said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. In other words, satisfy yourselves. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the Jews were really upset that somehow this pernicious idea that Jesus was the true Messiah, that he died and somehow he's going to rise again, put fear in the religious leaders' minds. So they went to the Roman governor seeking security to make sure that his disciples didn't steal the body and thus perpetuate this idea. But what they ended up doing by making this request of the Roman governor, and we have this in the scriptures, is they have given us one of the firmest evidences and proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of their fear and their desire to try and keep the disciples from having any role in this, they actually gave us one of the best, most verifiable ways to know that Jesus Christ was truly dead and truly rose again. Let me show you why. So they wanted two forms of security. First of all, there was the sealing of the stone, and the other was the setting of a guard. So I love the way the movie uh, kind of portrays the setting of the stone. Isn't that impressive? Man, I, I, I've kind of visualized it in my mind, but when I actually saw this in the movie, I thought, that's cool. They literally anchored it into the hillside, and then they put the ropes through it, and then they had these, these big wax areas that they would then take a Roman signet, and they would push it into the wax to leave a relief on it, which was basically saying this, this tomb is now under the jurisdiction of Rome. It's no longer Joseph of Arimathea's tomb anymore. We have now taken it under our, our possession, and we are the ones who are making sure that it is safe. Now, if Jesus was crucified the day before, and they hastily put him into the tomb, and he, it wasn't watched all night long, and your goal was to seal the tomb to guarantee the body would not be stolen, what are you going to do? Before you seal the stone, I hope you would say, I wonder if he's in there. So what you would do is you would have the soldiers roll back the stone, and they would go in to absolutely make sure that the body is still there. We don't know exactly how they did that. Did they un kind of unwrap him and see that the prints were there and that the piercing of the side was there, that all of that transpired? I don't know. But what we do know is this. Somebody said, Henry Summer Maine put it this way, seals in antiquity were actually considered a mode of authentication. It was a way of actually verifying that the body of Jesus was in the tomb before they rolled the stone back and literally sealed it down and made it Roman property, which, by the way, meant if you messed with it, it cost you your life. 
So that's awesome. They did a great job. They sealed it up and they made sure that Jesus was dead and in it. So that was one aspect that they went on to do. But another thing that they did is not only did they seal the stone, but they also set the guard. Now, this is the part that, of the movie that I don't like. Uh, one of the parts. Uh, what they did is they continued to perpetuate this idea that somehow the guards at the tomb were these, these funky dudes. You know, there's two of them. And they're very dysfunctional guys. If you saw the movie, you know that they hadn't slept for a really long time, so they were sleep-deprived, uh, that they had not eaten for a long time, and that they were drinking tainted wine. So, you know, that just leaves you to think, okay, these guys were all hallucinating, they weren't, they weren't very worthy, they were just kind of a couple dudes who really didn't know what they were doing. And the sad thing is, is that's exactly how most of the children's books kind of make the guards look. Uh, it's also how uh, many of our passion plays, which many churches do, looks. And so here's a typical passion play that a church did. And so here we have Fred and, and Butch. And, you know, they, they look really menacing, don't they? You see, at these passion plays, we take guys who are too old uh, to move too much, and we take guys who can't act, and we make them guards. And so here we have them, Fred and Butch, and notice they have plastic helmets, and they have, they have a trash bag draped over them for armor. They have cardboard shields, and it looks like they went to their closets and pulled out a rod in order to make it a spear. They look really menacing, don't they? Yeah, and so often we perpetuate this idea of those are the guys who are there. If you ask me, I think if you had a couple of fleet-footed little nursery kids, they could run around these guys pretty quickly, get back to the stone and jump in. And I'm afraid we tend to put it forward like that. But actually, in the text that, that we looked at there in Matthew, when he said, I'm going to give you a guard of soldiers, and you can set the guard, the guard there was actually a custodial team given by the Romans. The Romans actually had these teams of what they call custodial guards. And it was generally a group of 16 highly trained, well-armed soldiers. This is a custodial team. And so these guys, every one of them, has been, has been trained by the Roman government to be able to, to hold six square yards of turf. That by the time they drew their sword and that they had a spear, they could hold off six square yards of territory and, and lock it down. If the numbers coming at them were too overwhelming, then the men would then uh, form into what is known as the, the totestu or the, the, the tortoise formation. The guys in the tortoise formation had the ability to hold 36 square feet of ground against a battalion of men, 430 guys. 16 men in this fashion could hold off a battalion. This is a custodial team. This is most likely the guard that would have been at the tomb. And the way they would have done it is four guys would have stood watch for four hours. The other 12 would have laid down sleeping with their head toward the tomb and their feet away. In every four hours, the four who were, work, who were on guard would wake up four other guys, and they would always keep a fresh four at the tomb to make sure nothing could get through. This is the guards. Do you think 11 fishermen intent on getting that stone open and ripping and, and getting in there and stealing Jesus' body, how well do you think they're going to hold up against a custodial unit like this? Not so good. Not so good. And, you know, even if all these guys fell asleep, 
I mean, if, if they drank wine, I don't know. If they all fell asleep, what is the likelihood that 11 fishermen are going to sneak through an encampment of 16 guys and go over and move a two-ton stone without waking anybody up? Not so good. Not so good. So what we have in this first proof, if you will, this first proof is the idea that by asking for the seal as well as the soldiers, the seal authenticated that Jesus' body was indeed in the tomb, and the Roman guard made it laughable that 11 fishermen could rush them and overpower the guard and steal the body of Jesus. The likelihood is Jesus Christ probably rose from the dead just like he said. Just saying, just saying. And when the tomb went empty, it created quite a stir in the midst of Jerusalem. The Nazarene. Of course the Nazarene. His tomb is stone empty. Who brought this news? The guards? Your guards are missing. Some simpleton reported it. Who did you put on the detail? I want them found and lashed to death, preferably. Let me investigate. Well, that will be helpful before Caiaphas and his pack of raving Jews show up here. Too late. Tribune. Shall we dispense with lies? The guards have told me. They came to you. Seeking sanctuary. I know the penalty for sleeping on duty. What happened? Exactly as I had predicted. The heretic's disciples came in the night and stole the body. Already they are proclaiming him risen from death. Will the people believe it? The weak will. Others want to. So we must announce the theft. Will they believe you? They'll believe the guards. If you don't kill them first. Endless. Proclaim it before this blossoms. It's not enough. Without a corpse to prove him dead, we have a potential messiah. I want no doubt. Tiberius cannot arrive to unrest. We must find a body. Could it be that Jesus rose from the dead just as he said? Proof number one, the empty tomb. Proof number two, and I love this one, the proof of the disciples' boldness. You know, um, when we get to the cross scene in the Bible, we discover that there's only one of the disciples there uh, at the foot of the cross, and that was John, who ended up taking Mary, Jesus' mother, home with him to care for her needs. Judas had gone off and hung himself, and the other ten had just kind of disbanded and run off for their lives. By the time you get to Sunday morning, you discover that they had all kind of got back together, and they were hiding behind a locked door. They were huddled together, fearing their lives, because what they had done to Jesus, they thought was going to happen to them next. So when they walked into this room, they were completely defeated. The Messiah, the King, the one that we we're going to follow is dead. He's dead. They were defeated. But when they walked out, they were dynamic. They walked into the room, and they were crushed. How could this happen? We didn't see this coming, even though Jesus warned them three or four times. Then they walked out of the room, ultimately confident. They walked in having a pity party, and they walked out ready to take on the world. They walked into that room paralyzed with fear, but they walked out full of faith. How do you account for the sudden radical transformation of this frightened pack of fishermen? Do you think that maybe... Jesus Christ died and rose again just as he said. Could it be 
that he actually saw them in that room, that they actually held of him, that they, he put their fingers into his hand holes and, and, and felt his side? Could it be that he really rose again? I love the way that they portray Bartholomew. They give him a lot of character in this movie. But while he was being interrogated by Tribune Clavius, watch how Bartholomew lights up. What you have to win by spreading fantasy. By mine own eyes, Tribune, I, I, I walked with him. He spoke to me. It's unbelievable, but it is so. Then conjure him up right now. Or show me the body he must have shed like a snakeskin. God is not at my beck and call. God, Yahweh manifests himself through a crazy, poor, dead Jew. <laughs> well, so it appears. What does this rebirth mean? What? Eternal life. For, for, for everyone. Everyone who believes. Marvelous recruiting tool. Much better than salt. How many are you? Well, we are few for now. And our only weapon is love. But this, well, this changes everything. What are your intentions? Why do you fear him so? This empire means nothing to him. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's what he taught us. What if I ordered your crucifixion? What? what I, I would happily submit. Strike. What do you do with that? I mean, what do you do? So, so Bartholomew heard Jesus say, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will uh, yet live again. And he who lives in me and, and, and believes in me, he who believes in me, and though he lives, yet he will never die. And so he heard Jesus say that, and then he saw Jesus die and then come back from the grave. All of a sudden, you know what? <laughs> Go ahead. Take me. I'm good. Do it. Do it. I'm not afraid to die. Because I witnessed a guy die and come back from the dead. And he said he's the resurrection and life. I'll follow him. So we see this radical transformation in the way in which the disciples are starting to live out their lives. But not only do we see it through Bartholomew, but we also get to see this boldness show up in Peter's life. As we look at the next proof, the proof of the lack of challenge. Now, Peter, of course, is the one that Jesus predicted. Listen, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he's going along, and all of a sudden, um, he's denying Jesus, he denies Jesus, and then the young maiden comes up to him and says, you're one of them, and he says, no, 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 and he swears up and down that he's not a follower of Jesus, and then the, the rooster crows. How many of you heard the rooster crow on that video from uh, Costa Rica? Kept hearing that chicken go off, or the rooster go off in the background? That is what is known as the ubiquitous chicken. Everywhere you travel in the world, they're there, and they are scratching and plucking and roostering long before dawn. Everywhere you go, there's a ubiquitous chicken. And by the way, there was one here. And so when Peter denied the Lord, uh, the rooster crowed, and he fell into deep grief because he knew he denied his Lord. Now, the crazy thing is this. It was a young maiden who challenged him. Now I want you to see the difference. Fifty days make. This is at, uh, uh, this is at a festival gathering. Fifty days removed from the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, the festival is called the Feasts of Weeks or Shabbat. It was a pilgrimage feast where this, the numbers in the city would have swollen uh, to, to great numbers. And the apostle Peter, with this vast group of people who are now in Jerusalem, Peter stands up 
and begins to yell out loud these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified him. And you killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here's Peter, big and loud and bold, just as big as he can, just as loud as he can, and you killed him. The poor little maiden said, you're one of them. No, not me. Radical transformation. And then notice what he says. And you killed by the hands of lawless men. Pharisees, Pharisees, Pharisees. Lawless men. Romans, Romans, Romans. So Peter is big and bold and loud. But the only thing louder than Peter's words is the silence from the Jewish officials and the Romans. Where are the Jews? Where are the Jews? I mean, these guys were theologians. These guys were lawyers. These guys were trained debaters. This was a fisherman. They should have run right out there and said, no way. And they should have debated him in front of all this gathering of people. But you don't see them. All you hear from the Jews is this. Hello? Hello? Anybody out there? No. No, they didn't take him on because they had no proof. And then where are the Romans? You see, in order to move that stone, you had to cut those ropes. Those ropes made it Roman jurisdiction. Anybody who messes with that is guilty of death, and you don't find the Romans anywhere. Why? Because they had no proof that would hold up in court. You see, what we see on the day of Pentecost is Peter in great boldness proclaiming these great truths, and you see nothing. Thing, nothing of the Jews, nothing of the Romans. How did the people that day take what Peter had to say? What did they do with what Peter said? You see, there were only a 15-minute walk to where the tomb was. Only 15 minutes. Any of them could have just slipped away and said, let's go check this out for ourselves. Let's see what happened. But this is how the people that day responded to this news that Peter had shared with them. It says this in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Those who had heard his word were then baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 people. So how would you take what they heard? Do you think they believed it? you think it made sense to them? They lived then. They could have investigated. They could have checked it out, and they said, we believe it. This Jesus who died must be alive. Just some evidence, just some evidence, just some evidence. The proof of the empty tomb, the proof of the disciples' boldness, the lack of challenge. Here's another one, and this one is really important because anytime you come to a court of law, the proof of eyewitnesses always prevails. This uh, statement comes from none other than the apostle uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's consider the eyewitness testimony that Paul has. Here we go. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless, of course, you believed in vain. Here we go. For I deliver to you as of first importance, this is really important, guys, what I also received. So I'm giving to you what I received. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This was part of the part and parcel of the plan of God. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's name, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Whoa. Paul, Paul, I'm afraid you, you probably overstepped your bounds here. Paul, I'm afraid that you, you probably did a big, big mistake here. You see, Paul, it's one thing to make audacious claims that Jesus Christ is, is God and that he came and he died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day. It's one thing to make claims like that. If everybody who can validate it or, or turn it around and say it is not true, that it's a fraud, are dead. But if you can actually say, this happened and over 500 people saw him at one time, most of them are still alive. And if you really like to call him, I've got them on my contacts list and I'd be happy to dial the phone number for you. So this is what he's saying. He said, we got over 500 people that saw him at once, alive. Incredible. Really? Really? You know, this is a bit like me doing something like this. You know, um, last summer was probably one of the great highlights of my life. Uh, it was so amazing to me that the United States Olympic team really wanted me uh, to run the last leg or the, the, the anchor leg of the 4x100 relay at, at the World Games in Beijing. I was floored that they wanted me. But you know, when they said they wanted you, and you, you, know, you do whatever you have to do for America, so I said, yes, I'll do this. And so we went over there, and, and you know, we practiced, and we practiced, and we practiced, and, and, and it was so amazing that when, I, when we finally got to the final round, I was running like mad, I got a, I got a good handoff, and I was, well, let me show you what happened. It was amazing. I got this great handoff. And I was running like crazy. The only problem is Usain Bolt, who happens to be the fastest man in the world, was just ahead of me. Notice I was just behind him here. And Usain Bolt is just booking it, you know? And I'm running for all I'm worth right behind him. But I was catching up to him. And at the tape, I broke the tape just ahead of Usain Bolt. You should have seen his face. Who are you? How did you do that? And I just smiled, and my teammates all jumped on me, and the crowd was cheering. It was a highlight of my life. We all stood on the podium together. We got the gold medal for America. Amen? You know, Pastor Bill, that's a pretty fantastic story, considering you hurt your back yesterday just moving mulch. <laughs> How is it possible that that could even be true? You see, I just made a fantastic statement. And the challenge is this, not everybody who could have witnessed that is dead, which means you can actually investigate this. And if you push down just a little bit, and it won't take a lot, <laughs> if you push down just a little bit, you'll discover that, you know what, um, I'm a fraud. It wasn't really me who did that. In fact, you'll notice this is England. The United States was actually disqualified for handing off the baton improperly. So not only did we not win the medal, we actually were disqualified in the 4x100 relay last year. You see, this is what Paul's doing. He's putting himself out there, and he's saying, check me up, check me out, go ahead. There's a lot of people who saw him alive. Give it a go. Could it be, could it be, that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. I like what Josh McDowell says. He has this quote. He said, let's take the more than 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive after his death and burial 
and place them in a courtroom. Do you realize that if each of these 500 were to testify only six minutes, including cross-examination, you would have an amazing 50 hours of first-hand eyewitness testimony? Add to this the testimony of the many other witnesses, and you could well have the largest, most lopsided trial in history. And the summation and the conclusion of that trial would be, Jesus Christ rose from the dead just as he said. One last, one last. The proof of the empty tomb, the proof of the disciples' uh, boldness, the proof of the lack of uh, challenge by the Jews and the Romans, and the proof of the eyewitnesses, and then I happen to think this is one of the most important proofs there is, the proof of changed lives. Again, to me, this is one of the most powerful proofs for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Think about the disciples again. Think about them. Here's a bunch of guys, fishermen, dudes. You know, this is who they are. And all of a sudden, after, after Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and makes all these, these incredible claims, uh, they leave all of their, their uh, work-a-day life, they leave it behind, they formulate around a particular message, and this is their message. Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God. He came and died for your sins. He rose again on the third day, and he welcomes you into relationship with the living God through himself. That's their message. It's called the gospel, the good news. Now, each of these guys went on to actually give their lives for this message. In fact, according to church history, this is how the 12 apostles died. Andrew was crucified in Greece in 69 AD. Now, when they crucified him, they didn't actually put the, uh, the nails through his hands and feet. Rather, they tied him on there so that he would starve to death as he was suffocating for oxygen. He was on there for days, but every day he was on there, he was preaching the love of God to everyone who walked by. So that's Andrew. Here we go. Bartholomew, the dude that we saw just a few minutes ago. Bartholomew was actually skinned alive. He was flayed, and uh, then he was beheaded in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, was crucified in Persia. James, the son of Zebedee, we know according to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19, that he was actually killed by a sword by Herod Agrippa. Judas Iscariot, or Judas not Iscariot, I'm sorry, was stoned to death in Persia in 72 AD. Matthew was speared to death in Ethiopia. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Philip was tortured and crucified in Egypt in 54 AD. Simon was actually crucified in Britannia in 74 AD. Thomas was speared to death in India. And Matthias was stoned to death in Jerusalem. John was the only one to die of natural causes of old age while he was exiled for his faith on the island of Patmos. You say, what's the big deal, Pastor Bill? There's a bunch of religious nuts everywhere today willing to give their lives. Let me tell you two things that make these guys radically different than the people we see today. Number one, they were there. They were there. They know exactly what happened. They were there. And somebody puts it this way, and I think this is so good. Nobody dies for a lie, especially like this. They were there. They could prove it. They could actually investigate. They knew what happened. It, as, in light of what happened, they were willing to give their lives completely 
The second way that these guys are different than anybody who's a religious zealot today in many parts of the world in various religions is that most of the religious zealots today are willing to blow themselves up and kill as many other people as they can. These guys were willing to give their lives for others, carrying to them the love of Jesus Christ. Radically different motivation, radically different results. These men had absolutely radically changed lives. How can you, how can you uh, sum that up? How can you go there? Unless, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened. Actually happened. Let me just call a few more witnesses, and then I'm going to tidy things up. Here's some more witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any proof, any real proof, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? If you were to go to the Guinness Book of World Records, you would discover that the most successful lawyer in the history of, of mankind is a man by the name of Sir Lionel Luckhu. He won 245 successive murder acquittals as a defense attorney. 245. He was knighted twice by the Queen of, of England, Elizabeth, and he was appointed to the Queen's Council to conduct court work on behalf of the Crown. Wouldn't it be really cool if we could go to a guy like this and say, hey, here's the information, here's what we know, Exam examine it and let us know what you think. Well, it just so happens that someone did that. They went to Mr. Lucku and asked him to consider the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One day, um, somebody went to him and did that. They challenged him to take his legal skills and apply them to the evidence of the resurrection. He spent several years studying the historical record. He finally summarized his conclusion with this statement. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Mr. Lucku, at 64 years of age, bent his knee and embraced Jesus Christ with his life. He was so overwhelmed by the reality of the truth. There is more than enough evidence to convince anyone who's willing to believe, but there will never be enough evidence to convince anyone who is unwilling to believe. What about you today? What about you have you come to that place of recognizing who Jesus is, that he died for your sins, rose again, not just to give you forgiveness, but a radical new relationship with God? What about you? I want to encourage you right now to consider doing something like that. If you've never embraced Christ with your life, today seems like a good time, doesn't it? Why put off something that you can satisfy right now? So right now, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me, just for a few seconds. We won't take long at this, but I want to invite you to bow your head and let's go into the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ together. And let me lead us there in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to earth and taking the form of a man, living the life we could not live, a perfect life, and then dying the death we deserve to die. Thank you, Jesus for validating all that you said by rising from the dead. Thank you 
for inviting us into a personal living relationship with you. Right now, if you have never come before Jesus and confessed your sin and your need of him, I invite you to do so. Simply something like this, from your heart to the Lord. Risen Lord Jesus, right now, as best as I understand, I embrace you with my life as my Savior from sin and as the leader of my life. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I embrace you by faith. Jesus, help me to learn to love you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, if today is your glad day of embracing Jesus,